0: Good evening, and welcome into this New Year's Eve edition of the QB11 Show, presented by Scoop Duck. I am here, of course, with QB11, Andrew. Good afternoon, evening, whatever, whatever the hell time it is right now.
1: It's still morning here. It's just
0: like it is there. Um, I'm I'm doing well, Doug. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and of course, we're joined also by Justin Hopkins, Scoop Duck owner and insider. Justin, happy
2: New Year's Eve. Yeah, happy New Year's Eve. Um, You know, you guys are cutting into my drinking time because you can't drink all day if you don't start in the morning.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll we'll get you in and out of here fast so you can start drinking and we can start drinking as well. We do have probably about a 45-minute episode for everyone today. We'll go over the Holiday Bowl, hopefully get to some listener questions, and then we'll we'll see you again maybe midweek for the next round.
1: Wait, you guys haven't started drinking yet? (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) I'm still on coffee. This should be a fun podcast then. Okay. Um, well, today we're going to be breaking down the uh, the holiday bowl that was just played the other day. Um, and we're going to try to get to as many listener questions as possible. But because of the holiday, we're all a little bit pressed for time. Um, so we're going to get through the the game for sure. And then if we don't get to your listener questions, I promise we'll get to it on the next episode.
0: Yeah, so Oregon Ducks in the Holiday Bowl against the North Carolina Tar Heels. This was uh, a much lower scoring game than I think most people predicted. The over, I think, was the highest one of all the bowl games. It was set at like 74, 75, somewhere in that range. The final score was 28 to 27. Oregon Ducks with a a last second or last minute, anyway, victory there in that game. Coming from me down 10 with two late late touchdowns to win the game uh, by that score of 28 to 27. You know, Justin, what did you see in this game that you liked from Oregon?
2: Well, you know, something I've said often, and I'll say it here, is, you know, win by one or win by 100 doesn't matter, right? You just win. And I think that, you know, for for Oregon fans, you know, kind of, you know, it doesn't necessarily totally get rid of that bad taste from the Oregon State loss, but it definitely helps. It's a little dose of of what I'll call optimism heading into the next season. Um, you get your 10th win. That's the biggest thing I like from that. I, I did I did see one thing that I really liked about this team that probably bugged me most uh, about the Oregon State game is it seemed as though, especially defensively, this team kind of quit in that second half against Oregon State when they rallied back to win. I think that stung more to me than the actual loss itself and this game that didn't happen. I think you saw some younger guys out there that, you know, got some opportunities, you know, Keith Brown immediately comes to my mind had a great game at linebacker. I thought that was the best game. The linebackers played all season, uh, with Fiona, uh, Bassa and, and Keith Brown, you know, so I thought there were some real bright spots. I had huge concerns with Christian Gonzalez, not being out there in that game. And I thought those guys performed really well. And and I will I thought it was a really well-performed game. And I want to say that's because I think Drake May is a freaking baller. That guy is an elite quarterback and going to be an absolute good one uh, in college football. So all in all, yeah, there's still concerns. There's still things to fix. We can get into those, but just all in all, good game, good win and, and a really, you know, strong way to head off in, into the, what will be a short off season before spring ball.
1: Justin, what about, or sorry, uh,
2: Andrew, what about you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the bigger, broader takeaways are, like, in, in a situation where you're down some of your, like, more key contributors, especially on defense, I think they had probably their best defensive performance of the year um, other than possibly the Utah game. They they just they showed up. They played well. Keith Brown was really impressive. It's just good to see young guys, when the opportunity comes up, step up and, and play well. Um, and, like, there's still the, all of the same problems that we've seen throughout the year still exist, uh, specifically, in regards to like our ability to rush the passer um, but we saw like the simulated pressure start to work like we had two sacks in this game and it wasn't because they were winning one-on-ones um, as as pass rushers it was because of scheme and so like it, it was just good to see them come out and perform well the offense was bonex was clearly not healthy um, healthier for sure but you could tell he like going laterally changing directions he wasn't comfortable was not trusting it yet um and so that that affected the offense a bit but when it when crunch time came he was extremely clutch and and I think that this is a good jump off point because nobody remembers the score of this game. I think back to the 2018 cheesy bowl where we beat Michigan State by one. Um and it was just the momentum that that game created and and like and what it did for that 2019 campaign. I think that this game's going to have a very similar effect. Um getting to 10 wins, ending the season on a positive note regardless of score because no one remembers these bull games anyways it's just important that you have that momentum going into the off season so now oregon's captured that um and and the real work begins with uh kind of again they're turning over almost fifty percent of the roster so get, getting getting the guys in getting everyone up to speed on the on the schemes um and now replacing coach Powellage who's moved on to be the defensive coordinator at Baylor
0: yeah, and we can touch on that a little bit maybe after the game as well. I, I again, I'd have to shout out the defense also. Um you know, they only gave up 322 yards in this game um and and only an average of 4.6 per play and it was 4.1 per play after the half so and they held them to six points in the second half as well. So I thought the defense did, did a really good job I and mean, Drake May was only 18 of 35 so barely over 50% and only 5.9 yards per attempt, which is is a pretty low number, especially for someone of his talent and caliber. Obviously he had the three touchdown passes in the first half, but they really kept the North Carolina uh, offense in check for most of the game, and in particular in the second half. Only five for 15 on third down conversions for North Carolina, which has been, you know, a bugaboo for Oregon all year long, obviously. They did go four for four on fourth down, unfortunately, including a couple of fairly long ones. But, you know, that problem still remains. But overall, I, I agree. I think certainly, you know, first or second best defensive performance of the year by a long ways. And that was pretty impressive considering, you know, a number of opt-outs at all all levels of the defense. So that's kind of my takeaway from this game. I thought the offense did enough early in the run game to really look dominant. Obviously, Bucky Irving had almost 150 yards on the ground in this game. Along with two touchdowns, a big 66 yarder, you know, shout out to Cam McCormick for that incredible block on that one, as well as the whole line as well. But, um, you know, then they really bogged down in the middle of the game and and only when they went kind of into into two minute drill mode in the last couple possessions, then did it seem like the offense really got back on track again. So I think there's a lot of improvement to look forward to on both sides of the ball in the
2: offseason. I agree. And I think to Doug's point, improvement's the right word, but it's not like wholesale changes need to be made, right? You know, that's always the biggest concern, like, oh gosh, it's so bad, I don't even know where they begin. At least from what we, I think we're all kind of saying, offensively and defensively, your starting point is in a pretty good spot. And if you can make some tweaks and do some things, you know, you feel pretty good about next season.
1: Well, specifically, I think it's a matter on on defense, offense is a little bit of a different situation. because I the offense is already very good and I think that they've already made the, the changes or the adjustments necessary via the transfer portal to make sure the roster's in a place to continue to be a dominant offense. Um, but defensively, like if you, the pass rush needs to improve, but also like you're only as good as, as your worst player on defense, unfortunately. And that's just the way it goes because all good offensive coordinators are going to find ways to isolate matchups and take advantage of the donkey. Right. And so um, it, Oregon needs to find ways to upgrade the worst spots defensively um, and bring those up to the level of everybody else on the field. And so I'll let I'll let Oregon fans, I'm not going to call it individual players, but I mean, I think we all agree that the pass, the pass rush needs to improve. Um, I think that we can get better at safety. I actually thought the corners played very well in this game, um, and I think that the cornerback room is... More than been addressed through the transfer portal and, and, and the recruiting this off season and just getting guys like Jaleel Florence and Jaleel Tucker and even Dante Manning, another off season I think will drastically improve our corner play. Um, but just making sure that you have the bodies and the and the talent at certain positions um, this off season is going to be really important because I don't I don't think there's going to be wholesale scheme change. I don't think there needs to be wholesale scheme change. I just think it's a matter of, of getting this unit to where all 11 players are operating at the same um elite level
2: yeah it you know defensively it seemed like in that game it was a tale of two halves almost you know and it wasn't like you said it wasn't wholesale changes it was just little little tweaks and 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 it allowed them to be a little bit more effective um you know in that second half than the first half so gotta think that Dan Lanney's going to be all over that this offseason cuz I know he's a perfectionist and he's a you know he's a guy that that works really hard on making those changes which I appreciate because I think we can all agree one of the things that frustrated us most about Mario Cristobal was his stubbornness and and the fact that he didn't want to deviate from the things that he did, which, you know, were successful for the most part, but, you know, it just would get frustrating that some of the things you, you would think that they would want to change and they wouldn't, it seems as though Dan Lanning embraces that.
1: Yeah, I mean, one more thing I want to say too, and, and make sure that fans understand this is that or. Offense and defense are very different. Like on offense, you don't need to have eleven guys that are all at the same talent level that can all perform, because on offense you get to dictate who you're giving the ball to, right? So if I have two elite receivers and one guy who's me or Justin out there in the slot, it doesn't matter because we're just not going to throw the ball to Justin or I. But it, on defense, like if you have any, if you have anybody on the field that looks like they don't fit, the entire the offense is going to be built for that week around picking on that individual player. So you're only as good as your weakest link. And, and offensively, too, it's less about like stars and all that. Are, are, they matter across the board um, and having good talent. But it's a lot easier to scheme points on offense than it is to scheme stops on defense. Like You've got to be able to match up. Um, and so that's where I think you've seen all the turnover that's taking place on this current roster. Um, if, when you, if you can't match up, you can't match up. There's, there's no way to hide. You can't hide somebody on defense. They have to be on the field. You have to have eleven guys, so something to keep in mind.
0: Uh, just one other shout out for me in this game: the the touchdown catch that Troy Franklin made, um, you know, late in that game to pull the pull, pull the score within three was was an incredible catch. I, I think it's yeah. kind of been under under discussed. I think coming out of that game, I mean, he's he's running across the end zone, you know, full speed in one direction. It was a good throw by by Bo in the sense that he had to put the ball behind him to find the hole in the defense. But it was an incredible adjustment by Troy to to stop on a dime, pivot his body around, and make a, a hands catch, you know, a low on a bullet, you know, for the, for a game for that catch that you know, third and goal from the six. If he doesn't make that catch, they're kicking the field goal because they're down seven or they're down ten at that point. They're going to kick a field goal, and then and then that in that scenario, the field goal that that UNC kicks on in the next possession would have won the game. So uh, obviously the, the code of fourth down touchdown catch to win the game was huge, but I think that Troy catch yeah. was was just as big and, and a hard, much harder catch.
2: Yeah,
1: but, and, and that's a teaching moment too, right? Like Troy needs to realize where the zone is and settle down and not run his, run run himself covered. Um, so the, it was a great catch that bailed out um, kind of a moment where you'd like to see your receiver settle down in, in the in the zone coverage.
2: Well, and to to piggyback off of, I would say, both of you, but more so Doug, you know, uh, I guess really a, a big shout out to Drew Merringer, too, because he called the game for Oregon offensively. Um, And we, you know, we all know it's not easy to slide in and, you know, take over someone else's offense, although he was a part of the offense all season, you know, it's still going to be different. And, you know, was the offense perfect? No, absolutely not. It wasn't perfect, but still for somebody to kind of step in, um, you know, one of the assistants, he did a good job. It was obviously good enough to win. Um, I think, you know, it was amplified. It was more difficult because you had a stipulation there where you couldn't run Bow, which is obviously a huge threat in the offense. He, he still wasn't 100 percent. It was pretty obvious that was the case. You know, so you kind of you, you, you are, you know, changing the offense a little bit around that. But still, it was effective. They ran the ball, you know, when they needed to. Um, and of course, you know, as we said already, it, it, they scored one more point, the North Carolina. So they won the game. But yeah, I think Coach Barringer deserves a shout out too for calling a good game
0: and the offense was was incredibly balanced as it has been most of the year 209 yards rushing 6.5 per carry 205 yards passing 6.8 per pass and honestly it you know points wise i think that kind of freak interception which was a bad throw don't get me wrong it was, it was a bad throw by bow but the fact that it was intercepted was was complete freakish luck um and that that really changed the game in in a lot of ways it was at least a ten point swing, and potentially even a a fourteen point swing in the game, and made it you know a game which could have been, you know maybe Oregon winning winning by double digits into a game that obviously came down to the last play.
1: Yeah, I think uh, when when they go to self scout, which I'm sure they've already started um, with the season now ending, I think the clear areas for improvement going into next year, just from a split standpoint, are red zone offense, right? Like that's that's probably the number one offensively. It's probably the the biggest area that needs to improve. Um, and and we struggled in that facet in this game again, too. I mean, the turnover didn't help, um, but we had to settle for field goal because of penalties. Um, shoot, we almost had a penalty wipe an- another touchdown off the board. Um, thankfully, Troy Frankel was able to make that catch and, and make up for the illegal man downfield that wiped Chris Hudson's touchdown catch off the board. So, um Red zone offense continues to be a little bit of a, of a problem in this game, and I think that that's going to be a major area of emphasis this offseason.
0: Any more thoughts from either of you on this game, or do we, we can move on to talk about Coach Palage, safety, safety coach, um, you know, hot board, or we can talk about, obviously, Tez Johnson, the new transfer portal pickup coming over from
1: Troy. Yeah, so uh one yeah, one more big picture thing on this game. Uh I think we got to see just kind of just going over the defense one more time. The, the interior defensive line played really, really well in this game. They were they were dominant. Um and and Mace Funa I think deserves to be shouted out because he played probably his best game as a duck in this in easily. this matchup. Um he was excellent against the run uh he he actually finished his free run as a sack on the on the first drive of the game uh which it shows how impactful that could be when when you when you make that play put someone behind the chains it makes it a lot easier to get off the field um but i just noticed him a lot just he's he's playing he's playing free he's playing instinctively he's really bought into the defense and that much is clear like uh there's surf mechanics against like zone like not not zone but against like zone read plays uh, where he's the unblocked defender he he's playing that um a lot more fluidly and instinctively and, and and because of that he was able to make a pretty key tackle for loss on the on the last north carolina drive um where where we got him off the field and got the ball back to go in the game so uh just wanted to shout out shout out Mace Funa because I think he's been he's been much maligned at times in his career I think we've seen him fluctuate weight quite a bit. I think that he's found a good, comfortable way, and I think he's finding his way in this system. And I thought that Keith Brown as well deserved to be shut out because I, I thought that Keith Brown played better in this game than, than Noah Sewell had played at any point this year, if I'm being honest. like He, he played really, really well. He tackled well. He moves a lot better in space. Um, and he seemed to, to find himself in the right place more times than not. So two guys on defense that stepped up big in this game with D.J. Johnson and Noah Sewell being out uh, think they deserve a lot of credit.
2: I think to your point, you know, defensively, we seemed uh, just more structurally sound, you know, it wasn't guys just running as fast as they can all around the field, hoping they were going to make a play and, and, you know, Sewell and Flo kind of fall into that. And you can have a, you can have a guy like that in your defense. You just can't have two or three because then all of a sudden you've got these huge pockets in your defense. And it seems as though, you know, at least in this game, they held the edge a little better uh, or set the edge a little better. Um, Like you said, linebackers didn't, you know, just run all over the place and create these huge pockets. Um, I, I think because of those two things, it allowed Mace Funa to kind of maybe run a little bit more free than he had all year, you know, because again, you can't have three or four of those guys out there doing it. Somebody's got to, you know, uh, uh, man, man, the spot. But I think with Bassa and Brown just playing a more level headed and balanced approach, it allowed Funa to kind of do some of those things he does well. So um, yeah. And, and again, I think you could see the reaction from the team. I, I, I think that, We've seen, we've seen a lot of bowl games this year where the team didn't want to be there, right? Where the team just kind of was going through the motions or you had too many young guys because of the older guys opted out. And it just like, you know, you'd watch and be like, that's the shell of you know, the team that we saw earlier this season. And that wasn't the case for Oregon. I thought you had a bunch of guys out there that were playing really hard, um, that that played with a lot of motion, a lot of pride. And those are now the guys, especially if they're younger, that that transform into leaders for this team, that transform, you know, next year at the, you know, at the voluntary workouts and stuff. They're not letting you slide by not showing up. They're demanding that you're there and you're working hard and you're not cheating your reps or you're not, you know, doing any of that stuff that, that ultimately makes a difference. So I think there's a lot there from that and you know Keith Brown being one of those guys of course Bo Nix is has really cemented himself as probably you know one of Oregon's fans favorite quarterbacks in a long line of great quarterbacks just not simply because of the way he plays but you know the the courage he plays with and and just kind of like what he's given to this program and I think what he's meant to the turnaround uh of this program or or solidifying it if you will um but yeah, no, pretty pretty optimistic. And it, it's one of those things where we try not to get too high, right? It's like, okay, let's not put on the total green, yellow sunglasses because we beat North Carolina by one point in the holiday bowl. But, you know, again, Dan Lanning's first year at Oregon, first year head coach, if his floor is 10 wins, then Oregon fans should be pretty excited because it feels like he's just getting started and and only going to get better. And uh, I I think we saw a lot. I think we saw the most buy in from the team in this game. And like you said earlier, Andrew, you know, that type of stuff carries you into the offseason on a really high note. And I think that'll make a big difference for this team.
1: Well, yeah, you're you're removing. You're removing parts of the roster, but you're retaining all of the most important parts from a leadership standpoint. Um, and so, having Bo and those guys lead this team back, and you saw that in the fourth quarter. I mean, down two scores in a meaningless bowl game, with ten minutes, left, a little bit under ten minutes left. A lot of teams would just pack it in and quit, and be just like, oh, we lost. sorry, right. it right. Doesn't matter." Like we 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 got our we got our bowl package, and we got to spend a week in San Diego. But that wasn't that wasn't the vibe on the sideline. That wasn't the character of this team. And I think. If you're looking for something to hold on to that's not tangible, that, that's the thing. It's that that this team fought in a situation where a lot of teams wouldn't. They came back, they found a way to win, and that the leaders that led that are the guys that are going to be taking this team through the offseason program as it gets handed over to Wilson Levin, the strength staff. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's my last piece on the game, Doug, if, if you have anything else you want to add.
0: No, I think we've we've pretty well covered it. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about the safety coach and obviously with Coach Palage going back to Baylor as their new defensive coordinator that opens up a a spot there in the Oregon staff. I know, Justin, you published a, a piece on some initial hot board candidates there. Can you talk a little bit or how much do you want to talk about, you know, what you think Dan might be doing uh, to fill this hole?
2: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it- it's only been a year, right? But I think it's pretty obvious at this point that Dan Lanning has a pretty good feel um, and a pretty good relationship with his coaches to know that, hey, look, even though it wasn't on most of our radar, it more than likely was very well on his radar. And I would imagine Dan had already been you know, working on that. Uh, during the holiday bowl, if not before, on working on replacements, and history would suggest as well that we've seen landing is very, very quick with his hires. They, they, they tend to be pretty good hires, but obviously it's, it's, it's a big contrast to Mario Cristobal, you know, which was a, a much longer process. So, I would imagine that. You know, we don't need to convince Dan Lanning that it's important to make the hire so that it's ready to this guy's ready to hit the road in recruiting, which will open up in about a week, week and a half. Um, And having that guy in place, he's very well aware of all those things. So, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know how realistic it is, but it sure feels like, you know, Keith Hayward is a name to watch here because half the guys playing in that in that secondary right now are his guys that he recruited Bennett Williams and Steve Stevens and, and whether these guys are producing or not, um, you know, th- they'll be familiar with them and there there is a little bit uh, to go with that. You know, even some of the existing uh, corners that are younger, like Jaleel Florence, Jaleel Tucker, you know, know Keith Hayward who, who recruited them, whether he was at Cal or UNLV a little bit. Um, you know, so he's, the, the circle is pretty tight there. The one thing I also like about Keith Hayward, is that he has coached uh, the linebacker position before, uh, specifically outside linebackers, might not be his strong point, but I do think that could help uh, this team as well. So um, that's just one name. I think there's, you know, do you do you take a stab at a guy like Dante Williams, you know, down at USC? Because again, whatever your thoughts are on the way he left or whatnot, he's he's very good at recruiting you know does he fit in well with that new new usc staff or you know does he kind of feel like maybe the odd man out i'm just asking questions we don't know the answers to that um you know blue adams is another name uh, that i came up with at oregon state he's I, he's one of those guys that everyone talks about as kind of a next up and coming coach um obviously hurts your rival uh oregon state was was pretty pretty good defensively i mean they didn't have nearly the talent level that Oregon did. And they were, they were a sound defensive team. Not that he called the defense, but he was a part of that. So um, those are a few of the names. I, I know rushing down at, at Texas A&M is another name uh, to keep tabs on as well. Um, not sure that that one's viable or not given how much he's making. I mean, at some point we've seen Lanning give out some pretty generous contracts, but he can't do that for everyone. Um, you've got to have some value guys in there to blend in with, with the bigger budget guys. So um, yeah, I, I, And last thing, I mean, if anything, last thing on history with Dan Lanning, he's probably got a name or two that none of us have a a remote clue about that'll pop up. And, you know, then we'll, we'll get the name and do some research and, Hey, this looks like a pretty good guy. Let's all get behind him. And, and we will. So knowing Lanning, we'll probably have an answer on it soon. Knowing Lanning, it's probably nobody that I've mentioned so far. And I'm totally okay with, with, uh, you know, with putting that out there, but, um, yeah, I'm excited, and it's going to be. You know, I think this person is going to be counted on because I think one of the areas that that Tosh Lupoy struggles with most is is obviously the back end of the defense. It's what he's least comfortable with and what he's got the least experience with. So I think Palage was involved there, and I think this next person will be involved as well. Um, doesn't mean they're calling the defense; it just means that they'll be involved in some of the the, the game planning. Yeah, I Andrew, mean,
1: you got any thoughts? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I don't. I don't have names. I don't. I don't think it's going to be. Anyone that I'd be able to come w- come up with, uh, but I, I could see a situation depending on. We talked about this last off season. There's the potential that the NCAA is going to change the limit of on-field assistance. But right now, Oregon is operating with a GA coaching the linebackers. It wouldn't be the most surprising thing if Oregon were to hire a linebacker coach and let D- Mart coach Martin coach the entire secondary. Um, but I, I ultimately think they'll end up sticking with just hiring a safeties coach um because when you when you think about like a scholarship breakdown defensive back is like one of the highest allotments i mean you're going to have close to like 18 to 20 guys at a time on the team and have one coach coach everybody doesn't make a lot of sense and so i think i think ultimately they'll end up hiring another safeties coach um i do think that having a, a good solid x's and O's background is going to be a part of this hire um that was one of the things that coach pallage brought to the table was I mean, clearly, since he's now the defensive coordinator for Dave Aranda, he's very well-respected um, as an on-field coach. I, I, recruiting matters, um, but to me, like, some of the retread names aren't as exciting uh, as, as some of the names that are more attached to Dan Lanning's coaching tree, like a rushing at A&M. Um, but we'll, we'll see what he ends up making the decision to go, which direction he goes. I just – I think that – maintaining um, really strong relationships in Texas is going to be important um, with this hire. Not that Coach Malco and Trey Dean uh, and some of the other coaches on staff don't have really established relationships down there, but that was an area of strength for Coach Pallage, and I think that hiring another guy with connections in that area is going to be important here. So uh, Dante Williams actually does check that box. Um, I don't know that he's the most apt X's and O's coach in the world, Um, but I, I think that I think that there's going to be a safeties coach who um, probably is off the radar that comes up here that will make total sense once the hire gets made, but we're just not aware of at this moment.
2: Yeah. I mean, to your point, I agree with everything you said. I think the Texas connection is big. Um, You know, thus maybe a guy like rushing being in play and, 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 and maybe landing saying, Hey, I'll pay a little bit more because I want to keep that pipeline into Texas going. Um, and then also to your point, it could be somebody that all of a sudden, you know, called the defense at Houston Baptist or whatever that we, you know, we don't, we've never heard of, but all of a sudden you start doing research and it's like, oh gosh, this guy's, you know, being talked about over here and over here, and, you know, this looks like a really good hire. So um, it could totally be either of those two things, and and neither would surprise me. But I guess you know the bigger picture is. Uh, The hire more than likely will be made in a shorter amount of time. And, you know, so far, Dan Lanning's done a pretty good job with most of his hires. So, you know, you do have a a pretty strong sense of confidence there that um, that he'll make a great hire. Last thing for me on it, which we can move on. Pretty crazy to think about, though, in Dan Lanning's first year, you know, and one year at Oregon, he's got two coaches on his staff that left for promotions. You've got your offensive coordinator left to be a, a head coach at a Pac-12 program. Kenny Dillingham, of course. And you got Matt Pallage, one of your you know, assistants on staff, go to be a defensive coordinator at a big school like Baylor. It, it definitely says a lot about his hiring process and the guys he's bringing in. It, it adds a lot of uh, credit to that.
1: And that's ultimately why I don't think this ends up being a retread hire is that like Kenny Dillingham and Matt Pallage weren't guys that you or I knew about when Dan Lanning was hired. Like the day he was hired, we had never heard of either one of those guys. Um, But in in coaching circles behind the scenes, those are guys that were extremely sought after and guys that were um, thought to be some of the hottest up and coming coaches in all of the country. And so I think that. The role At this point, I have a lot of faith in the fact that Coach Lanning has a really deep, deep rolodex and a lot of relationships, and he, he's good at evaluating coaches. Uh, he, he hired a great staff the first time. He quickly transitioned from Dillingham to Stein, which has already shown to be a really good hire. We'll see how it plays out on the field, but I mean his track record speaks for itself as a play caller at UTSA. The the, the, the last piece I want to add to this, too, is that Coach Palage was making $800,000 a year to be our safeties coach. Um, yeah. And there is now a Code DC title also that's available. So if you're looking to lure, lure somebody away from another school, like for instance, we'll just use Rushing as an example, because he's been he he has a lot of experience with landing at different places. Like you can pay he you could pay him two hundred thousand dollars more than what he's making right now at A and M, and get slap a Code DC title on him um, that he doesn't currently have. So there there's a lot of uh, ammunition in the chamber for Coach Landing in regards to making this hire from a comp standpoint and from a title standpoint. So I think that this is going to be a really attractive job. Guys, defensive guys very clearly respect Landing a lot and want to work with him. Um, and just the fact that he's getting coaches these promotions and getting coaches these opportunities so quickly in such a young career, I think is going to only make him more attractive to work for uh, as he goes through goes through these hiring processes. So I'm, I'm really excited to see uh, what he comes up with. I'm very confident he's going to make a great hire and nail it, and uh, I'm excited to learn about whoever he does decide to go with
0: and I'm sure we'll we'll get to see that relatively quickly as as Justin mentioned before, so I look forward to seeing who that hires as well and learning more about them and and maybe perhaps even before our next uh, episode that might be announced so we'll we'll cover it if it is, and if not we'll we'll cover it when it is made uh Moving on a little bit, Oregon picked up its sixth uh, transfer portal. Uh, Inbound transfer portal uh, player. This one from Troy, out of the Sun Belt Conference, and that is wide receiver Tez Johnson, slot receiver. Um, he's played 100. He's caught 141 passes over the last three seasons for Troy. 141 passes for 1,800 yards and eight touchdowns. He led them in receiving this year with 56 catches for 863 yards. I know QB, you've done some film study on on Tez Johnson. What do you see that you like from this kid?
1: Oh, I love Tez. Um, I was a little bit uh, anxious at first when I heard the name. I was like, oh, especially when I saw the f- familial connection that he was coming from a G5 school, I was like, oh, this just might be like a, a plus-one situation, almost like John- Dondrell Brooks with with Justin Flo, um, just to get just to help entice Nicks to stay for another year. But it's very much not that. I mean, he was the leading receiver this year for Troy. Um, he, c- he can work from the slot. He can work from outside, I think, at Oregon. He'll work primarily from the slot. But he is super quick, uh, really quick. Has good long speed, and it can get in and out of his breaks. As fantastic range for, I mean, he's really light. So like if we're gonna if we're gonna like fully break him down, I mean, he's only he's about five eleven, about one fifty five, one sixty. Um, really light, small guy. He's not gonna be a real strong perimeter blocker. But what he is gonna do is he's gonna absolutely rip the safeties off in in the slot um he can get vertical he can he can run the entire route tree and he's got exceptional body control i mean anything inside his radius is going to be a catch um i i think he's going to be a starter quality slot receiver at Oregon day one uh really big pickup again i was i was a little bit uh I, I had a little bit of a reservation about him and then i started watching the film and it was just like oh this kid it didn't take long it was like oh this guy is fantastic like if you if you're an Oregon fan you want to go back and watch him just watch highlights of any of the games against uh, directional louisiana schools that that troy played this year in the conference usa he he was eating them up he was a high volume guy in those games He was getting he had a lot of long touchdowns he had a 66 yarder against marshall um but yeah just really dynamic player overall i mean he's i think he's a he certainly makes our receiver room better than it was in 2021 um and the fact that he has that relationship with Bo and that he has this proven track record of production at the G five level, at a really good G five by the way, in Troy, um I I couldn't be happier about this pickup. I think it's a I think with him and Holden and, and Franklin as your kind of your front line that creates um a, a really strong foundation for your young guys to fill in behind.
2: Yeah, not to mention uh, a guy like Jurion Dickey's coming in too. You, we start talking about that receiver room, and it's been absolutely transformed. I think Mario Cristobal started that process. He, you know, he does deserve credit for for maybe getting a, a Chris Hudson in here and, and a Troy Franklin. And I think you saw in his final year that that the wide receiver room was finally starting to turn over a little bit. But it's a whole different room than it was two and three years ago. I mean, you're talking about you know on Dickey and Troy Franklin and. You know, and, and a guy like Tess Johnson, I I think he comes in as what they kind of hoped, um, Seven McGee would be. You know, I think I think everybody kind of hopes Seven McGee would come in and kind of be that that spark plug, that that speed guy. That you know, and and it just it's like Seven McGee was was good at several things, but not great at any one thing. And and I think Tez Johnson's production speaks for itself. You know, this guy is, a, like you said, a high-volume guy. The production's there. Um, I know whether you like or you don't like PFF, obviously they're very high on his ability, ranking him as one of the best wide receivers in the country um, at any level. So, I mean, the production's there. I, you know, him and Bo, of course, will have a, a really strong bond, and I'm sure that he'll look for him. Um, and I just think that, you know, we start talking about – you know the wide receiver room, this adds that balance. this adds that you know that different versatility to it to you don't just have you know long striders out wide. you don't have just short guys filling all three or four positions whatever you're running out there. you've got a very good balance and a very good variety of of guys that can take the top off that can you know find the soft spot in the defense underneath when you need three or four yards real quick. Uh, whatever case might be, I think you've got it now and Uh, I mean, if you're Bo Nix, you got to be looking at this going, oh, yeah, I got Bucky Irvin back there. I got Franklin, Dickey, Holden, Tez. I mean, you know, Terrence Ferguson's coming back. I mean, they're looking sick. Uh, I know we won't talk about it much. We can on the next episode. Now you got Oregon in the mix for Nicholas Harbour, who's an elite freak athlete. I know that, you know, I know QB would love to gush about him, but we probably better not let him monologue on that or we'll run over time. But, you know, you got and he's looking like a tight end potentially. So lots, lots of weapons on this offense. And and the biggest change for me is I think something you said earlier, uh, Andrew, is that, you know, this offense, you know, you don't need a bunch of high end talent guys to be successful. And if you think about this last season, Oregon didn't have a bunch of first rounders and second rounders on the offensive side of the ball they were just really efficient and effective and good at dictating and good at balance. And you had a good quarterback like Bo Nix making good decisions. I think now you've elevated the talent. Um, Tez Johnson being another key uh, addition for them.
0: Yeah. I really yeah. liked watching him, you know, to watch the clips I've seen of him, like the thing that pops off the screen for me is, you know, the speed, you know, just, you know, the speed jumps off the screen, football speed, right? Like, I don't, I don't know what his 40 time is. I don't really care, but when you see him in pads on the field, like accelerating, uh, pass guys and and having that kind of fast speed, but also the kind of the quick twitch, change of direction type of stuff. You see, I, catching the ball in stride and then kind of just turning up field, and and you just see him turn on the burners a little bit, which is I think an element that's really Oregon has lacked for for a number of years now. Is is a true kind of like shifty, speed, speedy, fast, you know, high acceleration guy, you know, in the slot, and and hopefully Tez can be that for for the Ducks next year.
1: I watched all of his film from this year, and I saw one double catch on like a hundred targets. Like he he really he really catches the ball naturally, um, and he accelerates through the catch point. He does he has like a good it, it's kind of like an instinctive thing. Like some guys hitch up on deep balls and like and they lose their stride, whereas he he's able to time it and accelerate through the catch. And I think that there was a couple times this year, um, not to pick on one guy in particular, where but like Chris Hudson. Is like stumbling and diving to make catches because he doesn't he doesn't have that same feel for timing and he's not as fast. Where like if, if that's Tez Johnson, he's catching those in stride and those are touchdown plays uh, because he's just more explosive and he and he has a really good knack for tracking the ball. Um, and again, like he's a small guy, he's not going to break a lot of tackles, but he will absolutely break you off in the open field. Um, and he might be a guy that helps as like a punt returner because uh, he is really twitchy and quick in the short area and, and his long speed is more than good enough. So um re- really excited to see him play. I, again, I, I just think that this kind of goes to elevating the room, like bringing in Dickey and Cozart and you have Casper coming off a red shirt. Um, and then with the, with the two transfer additions to go alongside Franklin, you, you kind of see the direction that this offense is going and like, yeah, like I don't want to go into too long. We're running out, running really low on time here, but like Nicholas Harbor, if you add a guy like him, it just adds a whole other dimension to your tight end room. I mean it's one thing to have guys that are good athletes for tight ends. It's one thing to have guys that are world class track athletes as tight ends um and so it'll be really interesting to see how that recruitment plays out and we can maybe break that down a little bit more on the next episode of the podcast but i'm I'm very confident that Coach Stein is really excited about this receiver room that's coming together because you have a little bit of everything watching the the thing about that u n c game is you could tell that we missed Dante Thornton a little bit, not because we threw him the ball bunch and he had all this volume, but because his speed was a legitimate threat. Um, that 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 pushed safeties deep and, and kept them off. And I think that Oregon only really had Franklin in this game, and you could tell by the way that UNC was playing us uh, that they were they were playing a bracket defender and dropping backers underneath them, and really, like really focusing on him. And so having guys like Holden and and Johnson with experience and bona fide production, I think is really going to elevate the wide receiver room. Yeah. And that
0: now puts us Oregon, you know, somewhere in the range of 91 to 92 scholarship players, depending on a couple of variables with probably at least, you know, two or three more each coming through the portal and the prep ranks before this cycle's over. So there's still, there still needs to be, you know, a, a, some more attrition on this roster and um you know i think i think there's some spots in the wide receiver room now obviously we've added two through the portal they're, they're probably a little heavy there you know d-line you know maybe some other positions so i think there's there's going to have to be another you know seven to ten seven to ten players you know exit the program over the next few weeks and, and that'll be another thing for oregon fans to watch and see see who those guys are
2: Yeah. Your, your word there was correct, Doug. It has to happen. Like there's just no way it has to happen. And, you know, and that's, that's where we are with college football now, right? The expectations to win are as high as they've ever been. Uh, of course these guys are being paid accordingly, but with that, you know, generous salary, you got to win. And I think, you know, the reality is now that with the transfer portal and with those expectations, Roster movement is going to be a thing. Guys are going to come in and come out. The the good old days of, you know, watching uh, Johnny Smith go from a a lowly freshman that you know four years later is a productive starter, uh, you know, just, is going to be a lot less and less. At least if you're trying to compete for national championships. So yeah, I I kind of lost track of the numbers just because of of the holidays and stuff here. But I knew that you know it was probably looking around five to seven more that you know Dan Lanning was going to need to have to figure out the, those scholarships and those numbers and like you said as well Doug they're not done adding so uh, again you know every Oregon fan needs to remember for every addition that Dan Lanning makes whichever way he makes them there's going to have to be a subtraction and that's just uh, that's just a part of the sport
1: yep yeah it's looking like there's probably going to be about 12 more guys that are going to be hitting the portal for Oregon here um to get back down to 85 by the time spring ball starts up so um with that being said we're up against our our kind of hard wall for today's podcast in terms of time uh apologize for the shorter episode but uh thank you guys for listening our last episode was the most listened episode um in the history of the podcast so we really appreciate that and the partnership with justin's been great and uh justin i just want to thank you from both doug and i um for doing this with us because it's been a lot of fun bringing you into the mix um and and adding you to the podcast but with all that said uh Make sure to follow the podcast at QB11 Show. Subscribe to Scoop Duck. Follow us all on Twitter if you don't already. Uh, we will talk to you later this week. We'll get all to our listener questions and um, and and discuss more of the roster breakdown and some more recruiting news. So uh, look out for that. And happy New Year, everybody. Be safe. Call Ubers. Don't drunk drive.